Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good, good. For those of you who I have not met, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here. A big welcome to everyone who is on the live stream this morning. We miss you guys. We love you. Saying hello from the metro here in the city. What a great place to meet and gather and worship Jesus together. Um, I wanted to start this morning just by briefly um, speaking to perhaps something that I think many in our church are feeling in this moment, and that is um, a really big COVID hangover. Uh, I've spoken to so many people over the last few weeks as we've started this year, and a lot of people are saying things like, my workplace is significantly understaffed, we don't have people, and I'm working three jobs at the moment, and uh, I'm really exhausted. Or, you know, the kids have started back at school, and it's just crazy, the testing regime of multiple COVID tests every week, and the stress of what's happening in the school environment, school teachers... There's a, lot of ha- there's a lot that's happening, and we just need to acknowledge the fact that we have come out of um, like just a crazy, crazy season in the history of not just our church, but of the world. And collectively, I think we're still reeling after what has been a really significant season for us. And the reason I want to acknowledge that is because sometimes we can think, well, I'm the only person who's feeling like this. And so, you know, when we... Um, get asked to, to serve, or when we have to change venues, it just it can feel like a little bit too much. So I just want to say a massive thank you to our uh, Glebe gospel community who turned up this morning. Yep, let's give them a big round of applause. Who turned up this morning at, um, at 7.30 at the factory to bump a whole bunch of gear out, jump in the go-get, get it over here. Um, and that doesn't go unnoticed. I want to thank you guys for that and recognize that Um, You know, this is a season where we need to ensure that we are being spiritually nurtured and fed so that we can continue to give out and serve our city and our church. Well, we are continuing this morning in our series, The Way, and uh, we have landed on what is probably the one that I was most excited about until I left my sermon prep to like the very last minute. Um, But I am still excited about it. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive into, we're actually going to dive into John chapter 1 this morning as well. So why don't you join me as I pray. Father, we thank you that you are ascending God. That you you are the God who from Genesis chapter 3 had a, a plan and a mission to establish your glory over the face of this earth as the waters cover the sea. To alert people to the universal reign of God in the person of Jesus. God, we thank you that you have sent your son. You have sent your very best. God, I thank you that you have sent your spirit and you are sending your church. And so this morning, I pray that you would help us to see what it means to be your people, a sent people a people living lives that look like Jesus. God, we pray as we look at your word now that you would stir our affections and change our lives. We know that this is the work of your spirit through your word. We pray that you would do that. We ask it in Jesus' strong name. And all of God's people said, amen. You know, there's this this strange reality that I think happens in the church world, and that is the more quote-unquote, mature you become as a Christian, the less missionally engaged you become in your life. 
right? The, the more mature, the longer that you have been a Christian, the less missionally engaged you become. The more your circle of friends just becomes your church friends and the more of your time is just giving, given to church. And I want to say that there's something about that that is actually not mature. The reason I said mature, quote unquote, in brackets is because what we believe here at Anchor is that mature disciples of Jesus are missional disciples of Jesus. And I want to show you this morning why that is the case. For those of you who are um, fans of the uh, This Cultural Moment podcast that was released a couple of years ago with John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers, one of the things that they kind of prefaced that entire podcast on how we live as Christians in a secular age was the fact that the church, by and large, had attempted to enter into the culture with um, the idea of if we are relevant enough, the culture will come to church. And so what did we do? We started planting churches in live music venues and pubs and bars and cinemas in an attempt to be relevant. And what really happened by and large, and of course this hasn't happened to us at Anchor Church, but a lot of the churches just ended up looking like the culture around them. In our attempts to, to reach the culture, we actually became like the culture, to the degree that we compromised our Christian values, distinctives, and even holiness. And so the challenge that we face as the church, as the people of God in a secular world is, how do we identify with the culture around us without losing our core identity, without losing who we are? We have to figure out a way of being the people of Jesus, of being formed into the likeness of Jesus with such robustness that we don't need to retreat from this world to the safety of a safe, holy Christian huddle, but that we can live sent lives, that we can be salt and light like Jesus calls us to be in Matthew chapter 5 without compromise, that our lives would adorn the message of the gospel that we bring to this world and make it attractive without compromising on who we are. And I think that the incarnation of Jesus is the exact model of that. So this morning, we're going to talk about incarnational mission. I realize that is a really jargony, Christianese, uh, theological word. The incarnation is really what we celebrate at Christmas, that God became a man, that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took upon his divinity, he added to his divinity human nature. And when we talk about incarnational mission, we're talking about mission that models itself on the downward journey of Jesus. But I want to say this, that the incarnation, there is, there is one Jesus and there is one incarnation, right? Where I'm not saying to you, be Jesus to our city, right? There is one Jesus. He came, he lived, he walked the face of this planet 2,000 years ago. He descended from heaven and that event will never be repeated again. There is something unique about that. So I'm not saying that we are to be Jesus to this city. But what I am saying is that we ought to model, I think the incarnation has, a con has concrete significance for the way that we engage in the mission of God. So let's go to John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became 
flesh. Now we know from the rest of John chapter 1 that the word there is Jesus, the one who was with God, the one who was God, the one who was with God in the beginning, the one through whom all things were made, the one in whom is light and life, the second person of the Trinity, only begotten of the Father, Jesus. That's who we're talking about when John says the word. The word became flesh. What does that mean, that word flesh? You notice here that John does not use other words that he could have chosen from, right? John didn't say the word became anthropos, human. He didn't say the word became soma, body. No, he says the word became sarx. That's the Greek word, flesh. The word became flesh. It's a description of our humanity in its weakness and frailty and vulnerability and need and brokenness. The eternal Son of God becomes the very earthy son of Joseph and Mary, or at least adopted by Joseph. The Word became flesh. Philippians 2, that passage that Esther read for us, says it this way, Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather making himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus took the ultimate bungee jump from heaven to earth. And sharing the divine nature, being equal with the Father, he humbles himself and is born as a baby, naked in a manger in Bethlehem as a child, clothed in flesh. The Word became flesh. Well, the Word became flesh. Come back to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and what? And made His dwelling among us. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this. He says, The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Love that. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Now that word there, that the Word made His dwelling among us, in other versions is translated, the Word tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent among us. The Word comes and lives with us, becoming one of us. Now that, that uh, the, the, the events behind John chapter 1, there's an Old Testament throwback to God dwelling in the midst of His people. Does anyone remember where that happens? When God comes and dwells in the midst of His people? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for whoever helps me out there. Exodus, that's exactly right. You're probably all on the spot. You're like, I don't want to say Leviticus because it's probably going to be wrong. And so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. But thank you for the brave person who yelled out Exodus. Exodus is the backdrop to John chapter 1 because that is where in the tent of meeting, the portable worship temple that Israel would pack down and set up and carry through the wilderness where the glory of the Lord would rest upon and come and settle upon the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. That is what is behind this, the rich heritage of the Exodus. And in Exodus, that word to dwell, that word for resting upon is often connected with the Shekinah glory of God. 
That's why in the rest of John chapter 1, verse 14, John will say, And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And in the same way that the glory of God would descend upon the tent of meeting in the wilderness, Jesus comes and pitches his tent and the glory of the, of, of the Lord is manifest through his life. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and lived among us. Literally, God moved into the neighborhood. You know, when you think about the mission of God, you think about the purpose of God, he has not sent his assistants and his minions to do his, his work. God has sent his only son. Jesus does not come to save our sins from afar. No, he becomes one of us. He comes near and he moves into the neighborhood. He, he adopts the weakness of our flesh in order to rescue us. You know, so much so that um, Jesus in his earthly ministry is accused by the religious leaders of being a friend of sinners. It's not that Jesus just you know, became human. It's actually that Jesus began to associate with and hang out with and spend his time with the sick, the poor, the needy, the broken, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, and the sinners. And he adopted the reputation for being one who was a friend of sinners. You see, Jesus became like, hung out with, and spent his time with the people that he came to. To reach. In reality, there is no other story like this. You think of all of the grand stories of the world faiths that exist Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, I mean, atheism, right? There, there simply is no compelling story like this. You see, we live in a world, in a culture that says, if you want to get somewhere, pull your socks up, try harder, perform better, and then you will be rewarded. We live in this performance-oriented culture. And into that world, God says, in fact, you cannot help yourself. And I am sending my son to come. And Jesus comes and he identifies in sympathetic presence to our weakness and our inability, and says, stop the striving. All those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. This story of the one who sat at the right hand of the Father, basking in the glory of heaven, became a crying baby in a manger. It is called the incarnation, the word becoming flesh. And I want to suggest that the incarnation has concrete significance for how we communicate our message and how we fulfill the mission that Jesus left us with. And what I mean by that is this. In John chapter 20, verse 21, as Jesus commissions his disciples to continue the work that he has been doing on earth, he says this. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive 
the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the sending that Jesus spoke of? How did the Father send the Son? If it is not John chapter 1, the incarnation, the Word becoming flesh. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father sent the Son in the power of the Spirit, so the Son sends the church in the power of the same Spirit. The great missionary movement in the world began in John chapter 1, and it continues in John chapter 20, but it continues with the people of God, with the church being sent. So what does this mean? How does this play out? Well, there are, there are so many ways that I think this plays out, but I want to give you one example of this principle in practice in the life and ministry of Paul. If you remember, Paul, um, called by God, Acts chapter 9, has this encounter with Jesus. His life is radically turned around, and he is sent to be a missionary to the Gentile nations. And he takes the good news and he preaches it. And one of the cities that he lands in is the city of Thessalonica. And Paul describes his ministry amongst the church there as like a, a father and a mother caring. He says this, In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. See, Paul, like Jesus, does not minister from a distance. He comes and he embeds himself into the community. He doesn't just come and dump information on them and leave. For most part, Paul tried to spend as much time as he could in a region or a city. And often the reasons that he had to leave was not by choice because he was driven out by persecution or perhaps sent by the Spirit to the next city. But Paul's intent was to spend time with people, opening his life to them, embedding himself into community. He shared his life. And it was the love of God that motivated this, the sending love of the Father. You remember, what does it say? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. It is the love of God that motivates God's sending. And it is the love that Paul has for these people that motivates and drives his actions. There's a quote from a a, a theologian. I always thought he was Scottish. His name's Bruce Milne. And for some reason in my head, it's like Bruce de Milne. But um, although that sounded slightly Arabic at least. But, um, you know, Bruce Milne says this. He says, when we recognize that if God in this sense is a missionary God, the summons to be like him assumes a precise focus the degree to which individuals and churches are committed to mission will be the measure of how godlike or godly they are. The degree to which we are committed to mission will be the measure of how godlike we are. If we want to be a people who are learning to love and live like Jesus, remember, that is our definition of an apprentice, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is someone who is learning to love and live like Jesus, then we have to be committed to the very thing that Jesus was committed to, 
the very task that Jesus gave his life to. The inescapable reality is that if we want to be like Jesus, the mission of God, and and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, that must be central, it must be the defining reality of who we are as a church. We simply cannot be healthy, maturing followers and apprentices of Jesus and ignore the mission that he has given to the church and that he received from the Father. Now, by mission, I don't mean conversionism. Right? I don't mean that awkward moment that you try and convert your Uber driver in the 30-minute ride from your house to the airport where you like unpack the entire theology of penal substitutionary atonement and then try and get him to pray the sinner's prayer at the end of your trip awkwardly as you're pulling your bag out of the boot. Right? That, that's conversion. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a place for that. There is a place for that type of opportunistic momentary evangelism. But if we are to model ourselves off the life and pattern of Jesus, then I think it means something more than that. I think it means participating in the cosmic plan of God that his kingdom would be established and that the reign of God in the person of Jesus would become realized, that as his people we would alert the world to that reality and that the consummation and redemption of all things would be drawn back to God. That that is the mission that we are called to be a part of. And I want to say that that has to happen on the foundation of all of the other practices that we have been mentioning in this series. This type of living has to be animated by the power of the Spirit. That's why in John 20, 21, Jesus commissions them and then breathes the Spirit on them because he knows that they cannot do this on their own. This must be a life that is soaked in the scriptures, that we meditate on the word, that it is our life and sustenance and strength. This type of um, mission is, is about prayerful dependence on God and about doing this together in community. Because if you remember what Jesus says in John 17, he says, it's by your love for one another that people will know that you are my disciples. This is not solitary, solo evangelists rushing out to the four corners of the earth. Again, there's a place for that. This is about the people of God being on mission together. The incarnation of Jesus is the model of how we do identification with the world around us without losing our identity as followers of Jesus. I love this quote from uh, John Stott. I was reading this week. He says this, Yet when Christ identifies with us, he did not surrender or in any way alter his own identity. For in becoming one of us, he yet remained himself. He remained human, but without ceasing to be God. Now he sends us into the world In other words, our mission is to be modeled on His. Indeed, all authentic mission is incarnational mission. It demands identification without loss of identity. It means entering into other people's worlds as Jesus entered into ours, though without compromise of our conviction, our values, and our standards. That's what it means to be a people sent on mission 
to this world. And sometimes you've got to admit that that is a relief, right? Because if we have to do the kind of, um, you know, upfront, big evangelist, capital E, gifted evangelist thing, we think I, that feels so daunting to, to participate in something like that. We've been doing, the staff have been doing this mentoring program called Building a Disciple-Making Culture. And the guy who's mentoring us says, guys, you need to realize that every time you say to your church, do evangelism, what they hear you say is participating trauma. Because that's our experience of what it means to do evangelism. It's like such a traumatic experience. I never want to do that ever again. But something like this, to embody the values of the kingdom and to embed ourselves into the lives of people around us with such distinctness that our lives would scream at this world. There is something profoundly different about this people. Lives that are so extraordinary that would demand an explanation for what motivates and drives us and our actions. So what does this look like? I think that there's a heap of ways that we can apply this truth. But I think the first is, means we need to move past conversionism. We need to move past this idea that participating in the mission of God is that awkward Uber ride or the flight that you have to Perth and those moments, right? And to begin to think that evangelism and mission is not just an event, but a lifestyle that we participate in, a way of living, a lens through which we view our entire lives and world. I think for so many of us, we think, oh, I'm so busy. I don't have time for mission. I don't have time to you know, share Jesus with my neighbor. And we think that we need to add mission to our already busy calendars that are already full. We're already redlined. When if we believe and begin to see that this is a lifestyle that we participate in, our whole calendar becomes mission. The event that you have at work, the lunch that you have with your colleague, the Friday night dinner with your neighbor are all moments and opportunities for you to embody the values of the kingdom and bless someone and as opportunity arises, share the good news with people. This is a thousand small conversations and moments of blessing. This is... um, meeting the needs of those around you, demonstrating the kingdom, small little acts of kindness, a lifestyle of mission, not just an event that we tend to turn up to. Now, in one respect, that's actually a lot harder, isn't it? That's a lot harder. But I think we need to move past conversionism. The second thing I think this means is that as a church, we cannot simply have a come-to-us strategy. We know that in Australia, in Sydney, 84% of the Australian population will not set foot in a church. 84% of the unbelieving population will not set foot in a church. Now, if that's you and you're here this morning, we praise God that you have come to church today. But the reality is if we simply rely on our Sunday-only strategy, that this is the only point where we wheel out the professional to tell people about the good news of Jesus and we all invite our friends to that one moment, we will only ever reach 16% of our population. We have to have a go-to-them strategy, not because it's strategic, not because of the percentages, but because this is what Jesus did. 
we are a sent people and we go and we embed ourselves in the community around us. It means being embedded in our neighborhood and in our communities, in your gym, in your apartment complex, your school community, your social community, as a sporting club, whatever it is. We are there as ambassadors and representatives of Jesus. I think it also means, lastly, that we don't use this city for our own needs. And particularly in this part of the city where it is highly transient. Many people move to the inner parts of city of Sydney for study or for career progression. And then once that we have outgrown our season here, we move out. And we think about this time that we have here in what can I take? What, what, how is my career going to benefit from this season? How is my study going to benefit from this season? How am I going to enjoy all of the wonderful social experiences that the inner west has to offer me, the cafes, the bars, the restaurants, all of the amazing food. What can I take from this rather than thinking like Jesus? How can I embed myself in this culture and be a blessing to it and not just take from it? What does this look like? Well, I want to give two really practical, concrete examples as I wrap up this morning. The first comes from uh, two families at our church. The first is from Matt and Robin Newfield. Matt and Robin have been a part of our church for the last six or seven years. Prior to joining our church family, they were frontline, on-the-field, cross-cultural mission workers in Muslim background areas. And Matt was telling me a story that when they first moved to one of these countries, it's incredibly hot in this culture, right? Incredibly hot. And you know Matt. Matt sometimes turns up to church in his muscle tee with his tats out and shorts and sandals, right? But when Matt and Robin were ministering in this one particular area, they went to live with a family. And one of the things, they did many things, but one of the things they did with intentionality was to alter the way that they dressed, Matt decided that he would wear slacks because in an Arabic culture, no men showed their legs. Always. Legs were always covered. And so in a very warm climate, Matt would wear long pants. Robin would wear long dresses that covered shoulders and arms and legs because that was the culture that they were entering into. Interestingly, Matt was saying that uh, this family that they were living with, I think he said there was about 20 people in this one house, the kids of this family desperately wanted to be Western. And as Matt and Robin came in and adopted the cultural norms of the culture that they were entering in, the family that they were staying with said, we feel so honored by the way that you have seen our culture and dressed in a way that would be appropriately fitting to the people that you are coming to serve. That is just one small example. They did it countless other ways. The other story I want to share with you, and uh, I'm going to brag on one of our families this morning, and, and I haven't asked for permission because they would probably not give it to me, so I'll ask for forgiveness. Um, but I just want to brag on the Volpe family this morning, Robin and Lisette, who have been a part of our church again for seven and a half years. The Volpe's have made a really intentional decision to stay in the inner west at significant cost to their family. When they first started hosting a GC in their little Stanmore apartment, they would have all of their GC around and fit 12 people in this tiny little living room in their apartment in Stanmore. 
and lead people through the rhythms of our gospel communities as a family together on mission to our city. And they do life with intentionality. Lisette is always at a park intentionally meeting other mums with her kids. And it has come at great personal cost. It would be very easy for Robin to move down the south coast and have a large farm and live closer to family. It would be very easy to purchase a, a, a big house in the outer western suburbs. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. All I'm saying is I just want to identify one family in our church community who have made the necessary sacrifices to be committed to the inner west, a part of our city that so desperately needs Jesus and to live as a family with three children and not little children. Like, you know, people with three children in the inner west and inner city, you're either really rich or you're weird, all right? One of the two things. Because you've got to be rich enough to buy a big house for your family in the inner west or there's something, why haven't you moved? Well, I tell you why they and countless others in our church haven't moved. Because they love the people. They love their neighbours. They love their community of friends that are in, in their little homeschool community that their girls are in. They love the people that they meet at the park. They love their family that live in the area. And so they are committed to making sacrifices. They are embodying what it looks like to be an incarnational people, an incarnational family. And I could tell countless other stories of families and individuals in our church who have made perhaps different sacrifices in different ways. But that's what it looks like for us to be the people of God sent by Jesus, filled with His Spirit, to come low, to make sacrifices, to serve the people around us who so desperately need to not just hear, but also see the good news declared and demonstrated in the lives of this church. Friends, if we are going to be like Jesus, lives that look and live and love like Jesus did, then we cannot skip past the missional impulse that Jesus leaves us with. My hope and prayer for this church, along with all of the other rhythms that we have spoken about, is that this would be something that marks who we are. The type of church that is able to reach and engage and love and bless our city, not just huddle in the safe, cozy comfort of Christian community, but live radically distinct, different, holy lives that would demand an explanation for the way that we live. And I'm gonna pray to that end as the band comes up. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you have sent your best, your one and only son. God, we thank you that he became like us identifying with us in our humanity and our weakness and our brokenness and our vulnerability. Jesus, we thank you that you became like us, that you know what it's like to walk in our shoes. God, I pray that you would help us to be the type of church that is able to identify with the world around us without losing our identity. 
Help us to be so formed into the image of Jesus, into the likeness of Jesus, embodying the values of the kingdom, that as we live sent lives, our neighbours and family and friends and colleagues would look at us and think, what is it that motivates and drives these people? Why are they so different? Why are they so loving? Why do they suffer the way that they do? God, would that be true of us? We know that we need you to empower us by your spirit. We thank you for your promise that you promise never to leave us, that you are with us always to the very end of the age. Help us to be your church. I pray this in Jesus' strong name and all of God's people said.